okay. Hey, what's going on? Um, so just a couple of things to get started before we jump in. Uh, I wanted to tell you about what I'm optimizing for today. Um, so most of the time when these types of events happen, usually people come with a lot of really their own questions that they want answered or things that are most sort of like important to them. So I've optimized for getting to that part fast uh, and not for spoon feeding a ton of information. Um, but I am trying to uh, shed a little bit of light of how product management happens in scaled organizations like Spotify. And hopefully that'll be useful to you. And hopefully more importantly, that's like a good springboard for just us to talk about stuff. Um, so we'll move through some content and then let's have a really informal Q&A and I'll also be around at the tail end of it to talk individually with folks who have like very pointed uh, questions. So just a little bit about me, um, like why am I standing up here? Uh, so I've been at Spotify for the last five and a half years. Um, during that time period, we've scaled from 2 million uh, subscribers to 50 million, about 8 million people to 140 million people using the service, and about 300 people uh, globally to about 3,000, almost 3,000 people globally. So it's been a bit of a rocket ship ride. Uh, when I joined Spotify, it was the largest company that I had ever worked for. Uh, the previous five years, I spent at three and 30 person sized companies. Um, so then I went to 300 and then we grew to 3000. So there's been this like multiplier effect throughout my journey. And there are some things and aspects of product management that definitely differ as you like scale up that large. Um, and so I tried to focus on like, what does that look like at scale? Um, and how does the way you think about product management change um, when you get to that level? Uh, so, but happy to answer any questions for you afterward about like my personal experiences. I imagine some of you are like, how did you get into product management? How does that happen? Um, Etc. So happy to talk about any of that at the tail end as well. Cool. All right. Um, and then the last piece is I had originally designed this to be a little bit interactive. Uh, I might tone back a little of that based on some guidance I just got about two minutes ago. Um, and so just think of these questions if you can, like write them down. I would hate for you to forget something because I'm telling you not to ask it and interrupt me. Um, so please, please write them down so we can get to those. Cool. Uh, I just thought this was really funny. Oh, that's what they translate emojis to when you present. That's crazy. Okay, that's not the emoji I put in there. But I, I thought this was like a funny way to kick off this talk. Do you guys know the Ebbinghaus curve? Uh, so this is um, a psychologist slash behavioral scientist from like the late 1880s who just literally modeled like retention of information over time. And so it turns out that like 80% of all information that you're given is lost within about one hour of having received it. And I just thought that was hilarious because like at 9.30 tonight, like 80% of what I've said will have just completely gone out the window. Um, and I just thought that was funny. Uh, I guess like that just means that the 20% that's left behind is hopefully the most important part. Uh, but apparently this has been reproduced now for like over the last century. Like we just keep arriving at the same curve, which I think is kind of, kind of funny. Um, all right. So a little bit of the agenda. Uh, I want to go through how product development happens at Spotify at a pretty high level and let you fill in the details through asking me questions during the Q&A. 
And then just a little bit about like what we expect from PMs, like what I look for in PMs that I'm hiring at Spotify. Um, and hopefully that gives you a sense of like the qualities that uh, ultimately make up a, a successful PM. And then Q&A, let's talk. Cool. So one of the things that I think is funny uh, about Spotify is that when they think about product management, they think like there's one product and one customer. Uh, but that's actually not the case at all. And this is a thing that's different about working at a scaled organization. So my question to you is, feel free to shout it out. What customers do you think Spotify has? Okay. Huh? College students. That's true. Labels. Yeah. Yeah. Artists. There's more. Okay, out of ideas. Generally, for I heard like artists and labels, I'm bucketing that into like creators and industry. Generally, we have four customers, uh, consumers, creators and industry, advertisers, someone mentioned, uh, and actually Spotify developers. And even developers outside of Spotify are also customers. And when you do product at Spotify, you could be servicing entirely different customers depending on what space you're in, and the products you're building are totally different. So when you're thinking of like product management at Spotify, you're probably thinking of the black and green app on my home screen, and like sort of that's true, but there's actually like a lot of software that happens that isn't that app that's also incredibly fundamental to our business. Um, so another question, um, who, uh, like what do you think Spotify considers as its products. Like, so if we have all these different customers, what are our products? Shout them out. Moods? Yeah. Content? Yeah. User data is definitely a product. Yep. Ads? Yep. Time spent. I would say that's more like a measurement of our products. For advertising, yeah, like giving metrics to advertisers, yep, that's definitely a product. Yeah, artist analytics, yep. Yeah, there's a lot. Um, so we have features. You all use those, probably, uh, many of you do, uh, which is the app. Um, but we also have content sets. So like Spotify is kind of a unique company where features happen both in the UI but also in the ears. And like, a lot of what makes a feature a feature is how it sounds at the end of the day, because most people sort of background our app and use it to soundtrack whatever it is that they're doing every day. Um, so things like Discover Weekly and Release Radar are actually products that have a PM, like thinking about that, even though 90% of the value is the audio experience, not the UI. Um, this is a little laggy, sorry. Uh, we have revenue products, someone mentioned ads. Um, but we also have an entire subscription business. Uh, so we've grown to 50 million subscribers, and that's largely through building products, whether it's payment processing innovation, whether it's uh, upsells and figuring out where in a user's life cycle to like, get people to convert, products to help us analyze habit paths to conversion. So entire analytics products that tell us like, where we could be upselling and sort of figuring out what value propositions actually trigger people to convert more than others. These are all different products underneath the general category of revenue. Artist products is a relatively new thing. That's something that I'm actually attached to. So if you have specific questions about that, happy to answer them. 
Um, we also have partner products. So we integrate with, this is an example of our integration with uh, Tinder, um, but Uber, uh, Sonos, these are all partners that have their own experience of Spotify. Uh, Runkeeper is another example. Um, and then we have platforms and frameworks. So these are things that like, like products that face developers. So I'm a developer, I wanna quickly build a Spotify feature. What are the things that I need to do that? Or I'm a developer and I launch a feature. How do I know if that feature is working well? Um, or I'm a, I'm a front-end developer, a mobile developer, and I don't have back-end expertise. I want a button that I can push to just spin up a back-end service really quickly. So these are all things that there are many, many teams. In fact, there are probably as many teams focused on building software for developers at Spotify as there are people building software for consumers of the app. Um, so depending on what your inclination is, there's lots of different ways to do product development. And I think it's most prevalent in scaled organizations like Spotify. Think about the product lifecycle at Spotify. Um, we have this uh, mantra that we stick up everywhere and think it, build it, ship it, tweak it. I think that Daniel, the CEO, just like really likes Daft Punk and it was kind of like, you know, it was, it would just sounded like that. So he was like, yes, let's go with that. Um, this is actually not necessarily just the tech and product mantra. I think we're trying to deploy it across all departments, marketing, et cetera. So that just the idea that like, um, these are the phases that good ideation should go through. But there's a little bit of philosophy behind it. Um, the way that we think about these phases is modeling risk over time. So essentially, when you go into a space with a lot of unknowns, there's high risk. And when you're a scaled organization like Spotify, there's also a lot of operational cost of bringing any idea to customers. Because 140 million people is a lot of people. So that pain, that operational cost, is a, it's a cost that we're trying to pay down over time. But ultimately, there's a fixed cost of bringing a product to market. So the question is, is the benefit worth the cost of doing that? And that's like the fundamental thing that PMs are like ultimately accountable for like assessing. But there's also a heavy degree of risk. So not only is there benefit, but there's risk of actually ever achieving that benefit. So the think it phase is about basically doing product discovery and keeping the risk and the operational cost, sorry, keeping the operational cost low while you're trying to pay down the risk. So we just assume that anytime we go into a space, there's a heavy amount of risk involved. And so I'll get into the types of activities that we do during this phase, but that's like the first phase of development. When we found value, that's when we take on the operation cost. So the think it phase is really about delaying the operational cost that comes with building any product to production to 140 million people. And this is where most of the cost of any project comes in. And so in the think it phase, the types of things you're doing are research, problem validation, and that's a key thing too. Like, is this even a problem that people have? Concept validation, like, okay, I've validated the problem, but is this concept resonating with people? This is the type of phase where you're doing a lot of throwaway code, a lot of designs that aren't pixel perfect, um, potentially not even designs. You're just talking to customers. Um, and I'll get into a little bit the different tools that we use for like getting at what we call product discovery. But generally, you're really worrying less about how to build something and more about should we even build it. Um, during the build it phase, that's when you really have to get into things like architecture, things like high quality UX, things like how does this fit into the broader design system of Spotify? Um, and how are we gonna scale this thing? 
Um, those are all questions that we really try to punt to the phase after which we're fairly certain that we've found new value. And then, of course, the ship it phase, um, how are we going to market this product? How are we going to monitor that it's actually doing what we intended it to do? And that is something that PMs are ultimately accountable for, is like in the months that it takes you to bring a new idea to market, you're sort of betting on it moving a metric or delivering some result, or maybe you've set expectations that it, the first milestone is this and the next milestone is that. Either way, you're accountable for sort of reporting back to the company, did this deliver what it did? And, and part of the ship it phase of figuring out, do we have everything set up to be able to tell that story or tell us that it didn't work out? Um, and then finally, the tweak it phase is really about learning from how the product is reacting in the market. Um, we don't try to fill the pipeline with like grains of sand, tiny iterations that don't really move the needle. If the first iteration, you analyze it, you're looking at it, you're like, I think there's like a huge amount of headroom in the amount we could do with this. That's when really the tweak it phase is worthwhile. And that's like an art not science calculation, because you're not necessarily total in total, you're not totally aware of what that headroom is. But part of how we judge like the sort of aptitude of a PM over time as they go from like starting in the role to graduating to being more of a senior product thinker is like a person's ability to gauge how much headroom is there on this path that we're in versus is this a bad idea or have we squeezed all the juice we can out of this lemon? Um, so that's, that's a lot of what happens during the uh, tweak it phase. And, and when we're doing those, that's when things like A-B testing can come into play of like optimizing the performance of the feature that we just put out there. So the way we think about think it phases is really putting together the right team with the right tools. So depending on the problem that you're trying to solve, the makeup of team that you need to discover an entirely new product in that area is different. And depending on the space that you're in, the tools that you're going to use to do that product discovery will also vary. So one of the things that I think um, sort of uh, helps understand how a PM is sort of getting more senior over time is how many tools are in your tool belt. Like, have you dealt with dealing with uh, different problems that require different tool sets for finding new value? So it is an example of that. And actually, before I go into that, um, at Spotify, our belief is that if we have a shared understanding across engineering, design, research, et cetera, during that think it phase of like the problem space and the potential solutions, that the operational phase of when we actually build it is going to be way more efficient. Essentially, people will be more bought in. They'll have way more customer empathy. And so we try to form... Oops. We try to form teams that represent all these functions in the think it phase. So an engineer might actually be sitting across the table from a user talking through their problems with them um, so that when they go back and they're actually like doing the hard work of actually making this feature come to life, they're thinking of that user's voice in the back of their head. Um, so we, this obviously is different than in some companies. And what that means is like when folks in design or folks in engineering are part of that process, they're not doing other work but we view that cost as worthwhile to build the shared understanding and have empathy across the entire team. So this is what a team typically looks like when it starts a think it process. But again, depending on the type of problem, there may be folks in here that are not part of it. Um, and it really just changes based on the space that you're in. In terms of the tools, you can look at your own data. Um, so like that is a tool. It has some pros and cons. 
The pro is that it's highly accessible. Sometimes it's also an unfair advantage, like you have information that other people don't have. The con is it only tells you about the world that you've discovered so far. It doesn't tell you anything outside of that. So that's a tool that you can use to get a signal about where opportunity might lie. Another tool is user research. Lots of good things about this. Um, the pros are you get at the why, like the sort of attitudes and emotions that aren't present in data. Data will not tell you how people are feeling, attitudes that you can uh, sort of exploit uh, in the products that you're building, emotions that you can exploit in the products that you're building. As an example of this, um, the lenses and uh, the masks on Instagram and Snapchat, a lot of the ways that hopefully, I think this is how they do it because I was just at Snapchat's offices last week. Hopefully there's no employees here who would tell me I'm wrong. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so a lot of the way that they think about bringing new masks and lenses into the product is actually by talking to people and figuring out what emotional gains they're looking to get through using filters and masks in photos overall. And part of how they got to like puppy and koala bear and these things, it's not a coincidence. It's not just like a designer in a room going like, this would be funny. It's actually that they found out that like the number one need people have with using photo filters and lenses is the need to feel cute. That is like what they discovered. And so it's, it's, not, it's not a coincidence. It's that that's in, it turns out that puppy ears is the most global way to model cuteness. Um, and so that's what I mean by like user research uncovering attitudes that don't tell you the solution, but it inspires a solution that is different than you might have done if you had just designed it in a room. And that's what user research is really great for. What it's not great for is telling you what's going to work. Don't think that if you put something in front of eight people and like three of them tell you that it's dope, that 40% are going to love your feature. That's not how user research works. Um, and so again, a different signal. So you're looking at your own data to go like, what do I know about users today? You're looking at user research to go like, what are people's attitudes and emotions? You can also use design sprints. Um, so Google sort of pioneered this a bit, or at least they, they put the name on it. Um, but a Google design sprint is essentially a five day period where you download a bunch of insights, um, you map user needs, and then you kind of cluster things, vote, figure out which problem you want to go after, and then you design rapidly prototype a few solutions. Some of these could be no code prototypes, some of them could be code depending on who's in the room. Uh, and then the idea is that actually prior to, to starting this, you've lined up customers to come into your office on Friday and you actually get feedback through user research or other means. So this is a tool. Um, again, it's going to kind of like user research, not tell you have you found value, but it is going to give you a signal of maybe what people's attitudes are to your um, concepts. A-B testing. This is like what most people like synonymize with like learning if a product is worthwhile. There are a lot of pros to it. Um, if you have enough scale, you can figure out if you can statistically, in a statistically significant way, move a metric. Um, you also can get a sense for, if I were to launch this product live, roughly what would the usage be, right? But it's also not going to tell you why people aren't using it. It's not going to tell you if that's the local maximum or the global maximum for your feature. It's going to tell you how well the thing that you did performed in the market. And it also relies on you 
being perfect at identifying the right metric for determining its success. If you identify a metric that it turns out isn't really the full story of what it means to be successful in this space, then if you get a readout that it didn't succeed, this tool is giving you misinformation just because you chose the wrong metrics to look at. So it relies heavily on you knowing exactly what the right metrics are. I'm not trying to like diminish A-B testing. I'm just trying to couch it in saying like, it's not the end all be all of understanding if you found value. And in some cases, if you're working at the three and 30 person startups that I was working at, you're really not doing much of this at all until you have a scaled user base. So some of these are based on like the context that you're in. Cool. So we just went through a section about how we think about product development phases of like think it, build it, ship it, tweak it. Talked a little bit about specifically what the think it phase looks like of product discovery, the different tools that we use and the team makeup that we do at Spotify. Um, I wanted to jump into a little bit about what we expect from the product management role, which I kind of touched on throughout the first part. This frustrates me. Like, I feel like this exists everywhere. Like, you, you, you're like, oh, what's PM? Oh, it's like the intersection of UX and tech and business. And you're like, what is that? What is that? It just doesn't, it's very, and there's my emoji. Uh, that was the, that, that was the thinking face emoji. Um, it could have been the rage face. I just don't, I just really don't like this description. However, it's there and people keep using it because there isn't much better stuff out there to describe it. There's like thousand page books on it from like ex IBM people. And then there's this. So people aren't really given like a lot of choice. And as a person who's, I've been in a relationship for like, uh, uh coming on 12 years now. Um, and, uh, and like, I think that my mother-in-law still could not tell a single person what I do. Like, and, and I've, I've probably done like 11 Thanksgivings at her place where they're like, how's work? And what do you do again? And I'm like, I do product management and, 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 and like, I, you need like seven sentences to describe like, what is this role? And that's always frustrated me. So hopefully I'm actually not going to solve this today. <laughs> um, but hopefully like some of the things that I talk about, hopefully stimulate thinking about like, what is the PM role? And I managed to get it down into like five words. Hopefully uh, that works out. Okay. So product management at Spotify, this uh, amorphous dark art uh, that is impossible to describe to your mother-in-law um, is really about five things. The first thing is product managers learn. They get a space that in some cases they know nothing about in ideal cases, they know a bit about or a lot about, but either way, your knowledge in technology usually gets outdated about 12 months after you start working in it. So product managers are constantly learning, who is my customer? What do they need? How are those needs evolving? Period. Learning. Relating. If you're in a scaled organization like Spotify, there is a macro company strategy. Daniel has a 10-year a vision of where we need to be going. Uh, the chief product officer might have a five-year vision um, and... A PM is painting a one to two year vision of like where we're going in this problem space, right? And the thing is though, when there's 3000 people at the company, 1500 of whom were in product and tech, there's lots of other ships moving. 
And so how well can you relate what you're doing to the broader company strategy and make sure that there, it ladders up to that ultimate goal that we're trying to do? That's a skill. The third is choosing. Um, and I don't mean choosing like choosing solution. I mean choosing problem. PMs are accountable for choosing the right problem. Most of the time that PMs waste their time or they fail is because they chose the wrong problem. Um, and so PMs are accountable for identifying the right problem. Solutions can vary. Executions can be failed or successful. I've had a mix of both. Um, but choosing the right problem is really what you're accountable for. And that's based on being able to synthesize insights from all these different tools that I was talking about in product discovery and formulating an interpretation of those that feels inspiring and insights driven, like this is why this problem space matters. And here's what I'm using to guide that decision making. But ultimately you are accountable for choosing. And no matter what I said about the like, think it, build it, chip it, tweak it, you would have to move out into infinity to reduce risk to zero. So at some point PMs are accountable for assuming the risk. Like it's your job to say, now's the time to like cash in on the learnings, take on this much risk and we're good to go. Um, and that decision doesn't have like a tool or a rubric or a framework for it. It's really up to the PM to be the person who says, we've now de-risked this enough, uh, or we have strong enough beliefs that we're ready to move to the next phase. So that all I bucket into the choosing the opportunity part. And then the fourth part is framing. So as a PM, you're not writing the code or you shouldn't be. You're not designing the software or you shouldn't be. Um, and so really what you're doing when you identify the problem is framing it, right? So the way I talk about framing, cause it's like a, it's like a weird thing. It's kind of dark arty is like, if you think about a problem and then you think about the solution, it's everything in between that. So it's, it's like you're drawing a bounding box of the possibilities of what the solution could be. And then you're asking people that are better than you, the designers, the engineers, and others to come up with the most creative solution possible that is feasible within the bounding box of those constraints. So examples of constraints are goals, right? So if you've identified a problem and you've said, this is what solving that problem needs to achieve, a solution that doesn't really feel like it maps to that goal doesn't fit within the box that you just drew, right? And it's your job to like make sure that the ideation and the creativity is being funneled into the constraints that you've set. And that's kind of what I think about as framing. This is also the part where you're storytelling and being a bit more inspiring to try to get the most out of your team. I think that another like dark arty thing about PM is that you're kind of judged by how much you can get out of your team. Like, and part of that is being inspiring. And part of it is some of the other things uh, I'll talk about in a second. The last thing is pathing. Um, so this is a verb that I think we might've invented. I'm pretty sure that's not a word. Um, but pathing is essentially uh, choosing the right path to get from point A to point B and being very astute about what the key milestones are from where you are now to where you're going. And those are also going to vary based on the amount of risk you just, you've assumed and the type of project that you're in. Um, I'll give an example of what I mean. So if you're working on something that has never been done before, there is no comp for what success means. Part of the pathing is figuring out how can I 
show that I have found value along the way? And how can I give us the option to move and pivot with these discrete milestones such that if the wind changes and like the market totally changes and now Apple moves in and does something or whatever, like you've given yourself outs along the way to pivot. That's like one skill in pathing. Um, another is like expectation setting about like what you can actually deliver at each milestone of the project. And what I mean by that is like, if you've set a goal, you don't want to be promising that like some milestone towards the goal is going to deliver that goal. You want to actually be setting expectations about what you're meaning to achieve at each phase and what the learning goal is or what the metrics goal is. So we can talk more about specific examples of that, but pathing is essentially just, some people call it road mapping, but it doesn't require producing a roadmap document. It requires just being vocal and transparent about the phases you're going to go through to get from where you are to the vision that you've set out for the team. And we define that as being uniquely different than the accountabilities of tech and design. And this is different than in some other companies. So tech is at Spotify fully accountable for delivery, provided that they have agreed to the plan those commitments become their accountability. Obviously product is gonna do everything possible to help with that happening, but ultimate accountability stands on tech um, and product is there to help facilitate a healthy environment. On the design side, uh, this was difficult for me because I love tinkering with design and I come from a little bit of a background of having done some of that stuff. And like when I joined Spotify, you know, our approach to design at Spotify is that really like product does not do design work. Um, I mean, I may whiteboard with a designer every now and then, I may sketch things up and throw them out, but I am not designing the software. I rely on my design partners to come up with the best user experience for, for solving the problem. And in some and user experience is not visual design. It's not mocking it up. In some cases, it's literally solutioning it. Like if there is a problem, UX and engineering are creating the solution. I'm not saying this is how we're gonna solve the problem which is like a much more elevated role of design than you might find in other organizations where design is actually like translating ideas into visual comps. That is like the last step. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, um, a lot. I would say that most of it comes from the research that we do with people through observing them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of what we're putting in front of users, depending on what we're trying to learn, if we're trying to learn like conceptually, should Spotify be going in this direction or we're, that's, we may not need designs. You could actually do like paper prototypes to like elicit the emotional responses you're looking for. If you're trying to figure out like, is this thing usable or is like this specific feature idea resonating, then designers would be part of that think it team that then produces concepts that are put in front of people. Cool. So the other thing, so I talked a little bit about um, learn, and I just wanted to say a little bit about what that means and like uh, the psychology thing um, relates to it. So I feel like this picture is like really great. In art history class in school, I learned that like you can, 
part of like what photography, art of photography is like capturing like a state of a person's face. And if you look at her face, there's like intense, she's very studious at the moment, but she's also like kind of, in my opinion, like sort of filled with like wonder. And I think that this is sort of what we would want a PM to kind of be looking like when they're, when they're looking at data, when they're in front of customers, it's almost like you're just fixated on this idea of like, I'm learning about the psychology of this person, the effectiveness of this interface, what I'm seeing in the data about what customers are doing. And you're just fixated on absorbing as much information as possible. The idea being that each one of those things gives you a stronger signal. The other thing that I think this uh, connotes a little bit is hypothesis testing. We constantly ask our PMs, like, if, if, if a PM comes to me and says, like, Miles, I would like your feedback on this direction. The first question I'm going to ask is, like, what is your hypothesis about what you're doing? And I don't mean hypothesis in the sense that, like, it needs to be an A-B test and experimentally designed. What I mean is just your thesis, like, why, what observations are there and uh, what, what led you to that hypothesis and what observations are you looking for with this idea? Um, and so the learning thing is really about being a behavioral scientist. It's about being an experimenter. And we look for that quality in PMs and how effective they are at doing that type of experimentation. But um, we also look for vision. Um, this is a super cheesy quote. I just couldn't find a better one. Um, but it captures the idea so well. It's like, it goes back to the thing I meant about turnover in technology. Like, your idea might be literally irrelevant 12 months from now. So if you're not um, looking at, if, it's like weird because it's like kind of rumbling under my feet. If you're not looking at where the puck is going, to use a Gretzky phrase, um, then that means that if, and you're super married to your thing and you're narrowly looking at like the space you're in right now and you're not being sentient to like other things that are happening in space, your thing could be irrelevant by the time that it launches. And so there has to be some element of like looking outside your own world uh, at what's happening around you. And so we look for that in the learning aspects of a PM. How good are they at doing that? Um, so that manifests in conversations that we have with them, like um, how much are they questioning their own work, basically, based on what they're saying could happen in the future and how strong is their vision? Relate. Um, I won't dwell on this too much because I kind of mentioned it, but these ships are all meant to sort of represent like different teams doing stuff at Spotify. They're all moving in the same direction. That's a skill that PMs need to have at a scaled organization like Spotify is figuring out, is my thing going to fly in the way of, interrupt, augment the various things that are happening at the company? Choosing. This is a framework that we use that um, could be useful to you for choosing opportunities. We call it DIVS. Um, and basically, it's a super simple framework for like mapping your own thoughts into a concrete conclusion. So I use this often. D is for data. Um, so data could be market research. It could be all the things I talked to you about around your own data, other people's data, talking to customers, user research recaps, et cetera, going out in Starbucks and talking to people and feeling things out. All those things are data. Insights is how you choose to is the observation of that data um, or what insight it represents. So an example of this is like, um, let's say 75% 75, 75 of podcast market share is uh, iTunes, right? This is a 
sort of banal example, but 75% of the uh, podcast market share is uh, iTunes. Okay, uh, that's the data. The insight is that podcasts is an insanely consolidated market, right? Um, so it's like what you say is true as a result of observing that data, right? And then a belief is what you sort of interpret from that insight. So if the insight is that podcasts are heavily consolidated, you could come up with several beliefs based on that. One belief could be don't touch podcasts with a 10-foot pole because you're not going anywhere. Another could be actually the belief is there really hasn't been another really formidable contender and this market is ripe for fragmentation. Um, so that's like two totally different beliefs. And part of, I think, how PMs advance in their career is by like leveling up the beliefs and interpretations of the things that they're learning in the market. And it's really important, I think, as a PM that you separate your own beliefs from any individual execution. This is something that I fucked up a lot early when I was doing PM, but basically I was too often synonymizing the belief that I had with the specific direction that we were going in, which meant that if that direction failed, somehow that was attributed to the belief, even if the belief was correct all along. An example being like, if we believe that we can fragment the podcast marketplace or say Overcast thinks that they can fragment the podcast marketplace, their specific execution of building a better podcast player isn't doing that right now. They're not, they're not even putting a dent in the podcast app. But that doesn't mean that their belief is wrong, that it can be fragmented. And so, you know, I think it's Marco Arment who started that app, I think. Um, if I were him and I had investors, if he has investors, I would be saying to them, talking a lot about the belief, not as much about the specific execution and just proving that I can execute really fast. So if this like smart player thing turns out to actually only really steal 5% of market share and it turns out that content is king, I can go back to them and tell them like, oh no, the belief all along is that we can fragment this space. The first thing we tried was only a small bit of it. And I think as a PM, that's actually super important because it's how you get funded into the future. Like, Product management is very similar to the VC model. You have someone who's giving you runway and time and people to help you achieve your vision and your ability to divorce any particular execution from your vision is critical to doing that. Um, this is another way of thinking about separating execution from goals and beliefs. Like you can have a goal, that goal is like derived from data and insights and those are more or less the things that can remain static, right? Problems and opportunities from those insights are variable. And certainly within any particular problem or opportunity, hypotheses and executions that you test are totally variable and should not be, you should not be married to any one of those at any point in time. And then of course, with any individual hypothesis you have, there's several executions underneath that and different learnings that you'll get, all of which maybe help color in the original goal and the foundational insights that you were using to do your work. So do we always follow this perfectly? No, but should it be in the back of your mind of like how we work? Yeah, if you're at Spotify, this is familiar to a lot of folks who do product development. Framing, um, I talked a little bit about this earlier. Um, this is 
that distance between problem and solution, narrowing it just enough such that you know that any solution that could come out of your team is goal aligned, but not so much that you're prescribing the specific solution itself. And this is most radical at Spotify. Again, like I said, a lot of PMs at Spotify have to like unlearn this thing of like, oh, I got to be in the details on like how feasible it is and how we do it and all the tech. I got to be in the details and the wireframe or the mock or whatever. Actually, you need to not be in any of that. And you need to just be really good at facilitating strong creativity from the people that you're working with. Um, and so that is where framing comes in. And the path. Um, the only thing I'll say in addition to what I've said already is we have this term at Spotify called the Delta. And the, while you're pathing towards your goal, PMs are expected to be the Delta between what the team is currently doing, pacing towards. If you imagine like a linear path from where you are to your goal, if you're down here, the PM is the Delta between that. It's acknowledging that we're not pathing at the right pace. The team isn't healthy. The problem isn't well stated enough. The goals aren't clear. The constraints aren't tight enough. Anything that could help the team pace towards the vision and the goal faster and better, the PM is expected to be that delta. And the best and most creative ideas within a problem space, maybe there are other tools and processes you could be using to do that. So PMs are always having a gut check, like how are we pacing towards this vision and how can I, how can I acquire a skill or learn something to be the delta to get us to where we need to be? Um, and one of the funnier ways we describe one aspect of the delta is bring the donuts. Like I think people need someone in software development, which is like fraught with like insanely torturing uncertainty. Someone needs to bring the donuts to make people smile and be like, I'm happy to be here. And like, it's okay that this thing that we discovered is like way harder than anticipated is something we're wrestling with right now. Or that first test that we put out failed, that's okay. Um, and I think that bring the donuts is both a literal thing you could do, but a metaphorical thing you could do just any way to like bring smiles and help to the team that you're working with. Um, so yeah. That's it. Um, that's all I wanted to cover.